Hello and welcome to High Pot and Fuse, a podcast all about science, maths and the world around us from the Mathematical and Physical Sciences Faculty at UCL, or as we like to call it, MAPS. I'm your host, Laura Hewison, and I'm completely unqualified to be here, but as always, very enthusiastic. Sadly, my normal co-host Sophie Lane can't be with me today, so I'm flying solo. But my guest here is Senior Lecturer in Science and Technology Studies, Dr Jack Stilgo. Welcome, thank you for being here. So, Jack, can you tell us a little bit about your area of expertise and your research? So, I'm... I'm a bit unusual, I guess, for this podcast in that I'm a social scientist that looks at science and technology. So my interest is in the way that science and technology relates to society. So I'm interested in looking at how new technologies, for example, are taken up by people, the changes that they bring about into the world, why technologies fail, why some technologies succeed. Um, so I'm not a scientist or an engineer myself. Funny enough, neither am I. Both on the same podcast, though, so you <laughs> can't go wrong. Indeed. And you were just telling me prior to this podcast uh, that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein has some impact on what you teach and what you look at. Is it, How does that work? Well, this year, it's 2018 is the bicentennial of the publication of Frankenstein, so I thought... What better way to engage with questions of science, technology, responsibility than to actually properly look at Frankenstein? So that's what I've been doing with my students this week, is taking them through discussions of what Frankenstein means now. How, how would a Frankenstein situation go down in the current 2018 UK government? Well, it's, it's quite interesting. When Mary Shelley wrote the book, Book, she was thinking about the science that was around her at the time and the promise, I guess you'd now call it the hype, that was around the possibilities of being able to reanimate dead flesh and that sort of thing. Um, but now we have the tools that Mary Shelley, I guess, was sort of foreseeing in a way. We have the ability to be able to intervene in nature in ways that um, we haven't had before. And so the questions of responsibility that come with that power are even more relevant now than they would have been back in Mary Shelley's day. So do you examine the ethical side or do you look at it more from a policy side of how we govern this and how it affects you know, society? I am more of a policy person. I, um, you know, as, as they say, some of my best friends are ethicists, but I'm not, I'm not an ethicist. Um, I won't hold that against you. So I'm interested in, in how you actually come up with good policy to help science and technology um, get aligned to social goals so that we can you know, have that democratic discussion about the world that we want to live in and think about how science and technology fit into that world. So thinking about the world that we live in now, what do you think the kind of the Frankensteins of today, what are we really looking at that will change our world and how we see it from a kind of science and a policy point of view? Well, if you I mean, think about the areas of science and technology that would seem to provide power over the future at the moment, and they're, so a lot of the most Frankensteinian ones, I guess you could say, are That's in the life sciences. Term. I love that, Frankensteinian. Good. Good. Um, so in the life sciences, the recent debate about gene editing, right? that's really live, that the power to be able to rapidly intervene in the structure of DNA 
which presents some enormous questions of, of, of responsibility. But also you can think about, I mean, I've done work on geoengineering, for example, the idea that you might be able to use technologies to counteract climate change with the potential to radically change the environment around us. Or you can think about artificial intelligence, the, the creation of some sort of artificially intelligent creature, I guess, it, in, in, in Frankensteinian uh, terms, what that m means in terms of how how we feel about ourselves as, as human beings, um, but also what should the responsibilities of the creators of artificial intelligence have for overseeing their creations and being better more responsible parents, if you like, than Victor Frankenstein was. Mm, we don't want another Terminator on our hands, really, do we? Quite. So what area of, of kind of research, and what are you really focusing on at the moment, um, kind of looking at all of these myriad of, of issues that will affect us in the next 10, 20 years? So for me, I tend to sort of, Whenever hype builds around a particular area, I tend to get extremely interested. Um, and I think that we should start asking some big questions about that area. At the moment, all the hype is about AI. So I've been um, asking some questions about artificial intelligence. But I've been particularly interested in looking at cases of artificial intelligence in the real world. So not just a sort of abstract software thing, but looking at a real world example. So I got interested in self-driving cars as a sort of case study in machine learning, a case study of how a technology, an AI technology, can learn in the wild. So in the real world, there are things driving around in, in various places around the world that are, there are computers that are learning to drive. And that seems to me an extremely interesting uh, set of questions for somebody interested in in the governance of emerging technologies. I got involved in this actually when um, it's often the case with social scientists like me. We get involved when stuff goes wrong because when stuff goes wrong, you start to see the reality of a technology that is hidden behind the sort of behind the hype, behind the veneer, behind all the promises. So um, I first got interested when a Tesla. Uh, electric car crashed in Florida and its um, occupant, driver, passenger, we don't know quite what the status of the person was, he died instantly at the time and then there was a crash investigation into, into what went on. Um, so I wrote a paper about that crash, what it told us about the reality of, of machine learning. Um, and just as that paper was coming out, um, an Uber in Phoenix, Arizona, ran over a woman and killed her when she was crossing the road with, with her bicycle. So these were sort of test cases, to my mind, of technology, of experiments with technology that were happening in the real world with some really important questions about should we allow that sort of experimentation? What are the ethics of that form of experimentation? Do people have a say in the experiments that are taking place? And that forces you to confront a set of questions about, well, given that these things are never going to be completely safe because no technology is ever completely safe, we have to ask questions about, well, how safe is safe enough? And that forces us to say, safe enough for what? Right. So we, we have to think about, well, what is what might the purpose of this technology be? Might 
there be huge benefits in being able to um, uh, alleviate might there be huge benefits in being able to cut the number of road deaths might there be benefits in terms of congestion and the way that we organize traffic in our cities might there be benefits in terms of being able to free up parking spaces right if in a world of self-driving cars you can imagine all sorts of possible uh, benefits with against which to evaluate any any possible risks and then we have a set of questions about well how do we know the risks that we that we face um, are there likely to be new risks created from computer-controlled vehicles? You know, the potential for a system failure rather than an everyday well-known failure of an incompetent, drunk human being crashing their car into a wall, right? These are... So we, we change the, the set of calculations that we make. At the moment, it's happening. This technology is developing in a rather sort of haphazard way as different cities around the world are doing their experiments. And the question that I and some colleagues in the UCL Transport Institute are asking is whether we can do things better, whether we can get more of the good stuff from technology, avoid the bad stuff and help create desirable futures rather than do a form of sort of technological sleepwalking, which is what we do so often with technology. We just sort of let it happen and we go oh, that was good, that was bad, let's try and clean up some of the bad stuff, maybe we'll try and fix that. And, you know, the sense that there might be a better way to govern technology is what's driving us. Well, I happen to read that there's been some recent tests going on in Coventry and Milton Keynes, so it's it's spreading to the UK. Um, I, I also have a quote for you that um, somebody who has, I would say, a slight vested interest in, in autonomous cars, uh, Elon Musk, uh, he was quoted in an article on online um, saying that it's really incredibly irresponsible of any journalist with integrity to write an article that would lead people to believe that autonomy is less safe because people might actually turn it off and then die. So how do you measure whether the 40,000 or near 40,000 people who die on American roads every year is any better or worse than however many people may or may not die through autonomous cars and how do you how do you kind of legislate against or, or for that what's better innovation or people's lives well so if you take the particular question of safety right if that's your focus and you were to say okay, that's, that's the purpose of this technology, right? And that's one of the stated purposes for, uh, behind, the justifications behind um, self-driving cars. Then, and if you're extremely optimistic about the potential of the technology like Elon Musk is, then the, it leads you inevitably to an argument where you're certain that these things are going to be safe and that you are certain that currently a lot of people are dying from the, from the, the, the current situation. Okay, so for him... It's inevitability that this technology will develop and that it will be good. And therefore, if you are asking complicated questions, then you are, and in a, he, he has written, you know, if you write articles that are negative about this technology, you are killing people. And in the past, people have written similar things about uh, agricultural biotechnology. Right, they've said if you ask questions about genetically modified crops, then you have blood on your hands because this technology will inevitably be beneficial. Um 
I see that as a sort of form of moral blackmail. I can see why he would say it, but what he's doing there is presuming that we know about this technology, and at the moment we don't. And if we did know about the technology, why would we accept his version of the technology rather than anybody else's? Right? There are all sorts of choices to be made here. I do tend to see any any coverage in the news or anything. It always tends to focus on the negatives in the in the in the worldwide press necessarily. When I looked a little bit more in the kind of the engineering press and things like that, they go really into the innovation and how exciting this is. And I read um, somewhere as as well that the kind of the leaps and bounds that autonomous vehicles could make could drastically change our society and how we interact with vehicles and how we not only how we get around but how do you see them coming into the the British world or the UK world do you see that having an impact on our our everyday life in the next kind of five to ten years I think so behind that question there's a there's a there's a question of whether a technology that is developed in one particular context is applicable in another. And I think this is really interesting when technologies themselves are learning to drive in particular environments. So at the moment, Tesla are generating huge amounts of data for Elon Musk, largely in the US. A lot of Teslas also in Norway for some reason. Um, they like and the they... environment. It's just, there's, there's fjords. They quite like yeah, it there. They do like it there. Um and so they're generating an awful lot of data. Will that be applicable were those were that technology to be transferred um, over here? Well, perhaps, but there would be a lot of work that would need to be done there. Um, I think there's a really interesting set of questions about whether Britain has an opportunity to do things differently, not because our roads are particularly different, but because our culture of transport is very different. So we're in a city at the moment, London, that predates the invention of the motor car that is a nightmare if you're a car driver for a lot of people where you can't imagine that a technology that has learned to drive on the streets of phoenix arizona you can just move it over here and it will be able to do its job uh, beautiful wide roads on a grid system absolutely i'd um, invite you to drive <laughs> to drive around soho for half an hour exactly exactly so you know taking a, a waymo car through dickensian soho would be would be quite a complicated um quite a complicated task um so there is an opportunity i think to reimagine so elon musk would would claim in his view, where he's saying, if you're writing negative articles, you're killing people because I have the vision, the only vision. And if you're standing in the way of that vision, then you are the problem. Right. He is he is suggesting that there is only one way forward. And actually, what we see with transport is there's always lots of possible ways forward. Um, I think in Britain, we have a real opportunity to work out how self-driving technology can fit within our public transport system to, for example, help questions of inequality and mobility? How can we make sure that people who don't have access to transport do have access with new technologies? How can we make sure that transport improves public space rather than makes it worse? How can we make sure that transport improves um, on our currently congested streets? Right? At the moment, there's a real danger that if everybody were to buy into Elon Musk's vision of where this was going, you would have a future in which people are uh, rather than walking they're taking a self-driving car from one place to another just because they can 
that self-driving car is then maybe driving itself somewhere to find a parking space. That sounds like a nightmare for congestion, right? The idea that just because a computer's in charge, we've solved traffic is um, is fanciful. And it's also, you know, a lot of these these visions of the future, even though the people behind them are expressing them with real certainty, a lot of them are themselves really odd responses to the problems that are facing us. So America, you mentioned, has 40,000 road deaths a year or thereabouts. Um which is about three times per mile what the road deaths are in Britain or Sweden or a really safe country. And the difference between those two countries is not whether or not they have self-driving cars, right? It's actually some fairly boring things to do with the condition of our roads, to do with whether we enforce drink driving laws, what age people learn to drive at, you know, how how well-maintained our cars are, things like that. Those are quite boring things. So, you know, one response to Elon Musk, if he really, really cared about the 40,000 road deaths a year, he probably wouldn't be doing self-driving cars as the inevitable response to it. Right? He'd be doing some of those easier things or rather some of those things that require political intervention rather than uh, just the intervention of artificial intelligence. No, personally... I live in central London. I don't tend to take cars unless, you know, I'm really, really far away from my bed and yep. I catch a taxi or an Uber or something like that. But when I do go in cars, I get terrible car sickness. How will we look at problems like this that might not necessarily be, you know, the the thing that you the safety thing or the environmental thing or it might be a problem that comes up out of nowhere out of you know everyday learning once autonomous vehicles become a part of our lives so that's it and the way that in the normal way that we talk about technology what you mention is an example of what might be called an unintended consequence that technologies do all sorts of things. They do some things that we intend them to do, um, but they do other things as well. And in the case of a self-driving car, it may be that car sickness becomes a big deal because nobody's looking out of the window anymore because they're all, you know, reading or or playing chess or doing some lovely activity that you can do in a car now that you don't have to drive it. Love playing chess in cars. Yeah, chess in cars, car chess. Um how you would deal with those unintended consequences is a really important question for, for policymakers. Well, the first question is whether you can anticipate those unintended consequences. Um, in the case of car sickness, people have already thought, yeah, that's going to be a problem. And so, you know, some people have said, oh, it's a problem that we can fix. Um, so let's come up with ways that we can make these things super smooth or ways that we can help people in cars, even if they're not driving, uh, look at the horizon or, or whatever. So they think, yeah, maybe we can maybe we can fix this. But there's going to be other things that won't be anticipated at all and just genuinely take people by surprise. So with when it comes to a self-driving car, the, the obvious thing to look at is the... Um, the uptake of cars in the early 20th century, right? A hundred years ago, cars were still a really peculiar thing that some very rich people uh, had. Um, and what happened as people got cars is that it changed the shape of our cities, 
right, in ways that people couldn't have anticipated. If you'd asked Henry Ford, right, when he'd created the Model T and made cars affordable to the middle classes in the US, what's this going to do? You know, you couldn't have blamed him for not foreseeing that Los Angeles would be an entirely car dependent city and that actually the the the, the 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 fabric of the American West would be changed completely by dependence on a on a motor car. Right? These are unintended uh, consequences um, that we are now locked into. And we might see, you know, both beneficial and detrimental changes to industry in a similar way you were talking about the cars then that that drove, you know, carters out of business with their delivering, you know, horse and cart goods and things like that. What businesses might we see suffer from an autonomous car revolution, like an industrial revolution? Absolutely. But for cars. Yeah. So the industrial revolution radically changed what business looked like, or rather business changed during the industrial revolution, because, you know, the cause and effect thing isn't isn't obvious. Um, but perhaps more importantly, in policy terms, it radically changed what families looked like, what work looked like. It created opportunities. It allowed women to enter the workforce in large numbers. And so these sorts of big social changes are bound up with big technological changes. Um, and it's really it's really hard to think, well, how do you get those right, given how unpredictable those sorts of changes might be? But as we're going along, the crucial thing is that we need to think about this stuff, right? We need to think about who is likely to benefit from this. Is it really going to be um, the people worst off in society who benefit, from example, for, from self-driving cars? Or are they likely to be taken up and used or maybe even bought by uh, the same people that adopt other technologies, who in most cases are rich people in rich countries? So you're really going to examine a lot of this with your next project, which is called Driverless Futures? It is. I'm glad you got the question mark at the end there. I it's did. Quite, it's quite hard to say the question mark, but it's called Driverless Futures. Well, I'm Australian. Not driverless so... Futures. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm Australian, so I go up at the end of every sentence. Right. Anyway. In that case, that fits the name of this project extremely well. I should do all your announcing. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um so yeah, the driverless future, driverless futures. Yeah, that project is asking questions of the people involved in developing self-driving cars, asking them what they think the desirable futures are, what they're interested in, what they're worried about, what keeps them awake at night. Um, we are going to be speaking to the various stakeholders involved. So people that aren't developing the technology but may have an intense interest in it, whether those are cycling groups or truck drivers or um, anybody, you know, making policy, say, for London, people in transport for London. Um, and the other thing that we're going to be doing as part of that project is having discussions with members of the public who normally don't get asked about this stuff because normally they don't have much to say about new technologies until those technologies are presented to them, by which point it's a sort of yes or no. And our sense on this project is that it's worth having that discussion upstream, that it's worth having that discussion while members of the public might still have a say 
might still have some opportunity to shape the way that this technology is is going. So we'll be doing going out and doing some uh, public focus groups as well. And the aim with that project is to is to present some options for governing the technology in the public interest. So to say, how might we do things differently in the UK, but also how might we in the UK inspire others to do things better rather than just a sort of privatised version of the future? How might we have a more democratic version of the future? Excellent. Well, we've unfortunately run out of time today, but I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Um, you can keep up to date with more Hypot Infuse episodes on UCL SoundCloud. We'll see you next time. Thank you.